This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. I'm your host, Ryan Jury. We are about to explore practical solutions and hear about how out-of-reach results are obtained. Welcome back to the Leadership Series. I'm Amanda Laramie, your host of this portion of the Coleman Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to share an interview I did with not one, but two leaders at an organization out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. Don Hout and Mendy Rosa will talk to us about the major culture change their primary care organization went through over the last few years. Now we have uh, staff who say to us um, with big smiles, you know, they say, we're the yes clinic now. And, mm. and they like to be able to, we, everybody all along wanted to be able to give patients what they wanted, but they just couldn't do it. And now we can. So mm. that's been very rewarding. In this episode, we have a great leadership book recommendation for you, as well as some invaluable advice regarding how to best prepare and lead staff through change. But if we had said at the beginning, um, which is what has been said on and off over the years, we need to improve our finances, we need to improve quality, um, that that wasn't working. That that reason why, that message, that was not, obviously, um, not working. Are you ready? Let's dive into this installment of the Leadership Series. Uh, My name is Dawn Hout. I am a pediatrician and I'm the CEO for Eskenazi Health Center, which is the primary care service line for Eskenazi Health. Perfect. And Mindy? Hi, my name is Mindy Rosa and I am the Chief Operating Officer for Eskenazi Health Center. So tell me what innovations you brought with you to the health center you started working at at Eskenazi, like, and you can both share this. Well, I'll just start the, the timing of when I left Chicago to come here and then had this gift of an opportunity to start a new health center was such that all of the things that I had just learned in the Coleman Learning Collaborative, um, I could put in place with mm. a brand new Health Center, and because Mindy uh, was already very well informed of a lot of these things, we were able to um, just kind of hit the ground running. The other thing that happened was um, the medical home concept was um, Mm -hmm. starting to hit the scene, and I had been very involved in Chicago with um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and rolling out medical home in pediatric practices. So I had Coleman tools, and I had medical home tools all fresh on my mind. And then I landed here with a brand new health center to be able to implement things. So I would say where we started had a lot to do with um, the flow of the visit. So bringing all the services to the patient um, and bypassing a check-in desk. Ooh, wait, can I pause you right there? Yeah. Bypass the check-in desk. How did, tell me how that worked. Well, it was awkward because we we both joined this moment after the blueprints had already been signed off on. Mm. So they had just broke ground, but the blueprints had already been in place. And so we looked at these blueprints mm. and we were like, well, there's a check-in desk. We don't want a check-in mm. desk. So we, we didn't know anything about change orders and the expense involved with those kinds of things. So we just turned um, 
some of the uh, plans, we, we had to change them. So yeah. we turned the check-in desk into a greeter station and oh. things like that. So Yeah. And so the patient would come in, get greeted, and then go back to the exam room to Correct. get checked in. Okay. And what year was this? Do you what year was this that you were testing this out? Yeah, this was two. So 2003, January is when we opened for business in the trailer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we opened in the new building. I think it was February of 2004. Okay, so that's pretty innovative for 2004 of like bypassing check in, having a greeter. That's pretty exciting. And that you were allowed to just take take that and run with it starting this position. No one was really paying a lot of attention to us because geographically (laughs) we were very far north. Mm. We were the northernmost health center out of the grouping of of health centers throughout the city. And so, you know, no one knew me, no one knew Mindy, and we were too far away. So people just sort of left us alone, which is one of the keys to our success. (laughs) (laughs) Don't pay any attention to what's going on out here. Um, okay, so fast forward, like, I don't know, I guess, is it 12 more years to when Coleman started working with more than just that health, you know, health center, you guys did that you you put that into place. But then we came back and worked with you for a number of your primary care sites. So what were your goals? When we started that initiative? I think that was two and a half, three years ago. Mm-hmm. What were the goals you set? That was one of the first questions we had to um, address when we were working out our contract with you all was what were the goals? Mm-hmm. And we had um, a pretty big ask, and that was um, to fix our access issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, uh, I, I can only laugh now because it, it, we have a, a success story playing out here, but, um, but that was quite a overwhelming, daunting task. Complaints were high, no-show rate was high, mm-hmm. numbers were down, mm-hmm. productivity was down. Um, on every on every scorecard, every metric you could think of, we were tanking, mm-hmm. and and it had been that way for a while. So it was almost just kind of, just sort of okay, you know, that's mm-hmm. just how it is. And primary mm-hmm. care is the loss leader for the health system, and just keep coming back each day and doing the best you can. Well, it's funny, too, how it seems kind of um, like paradoxical that you would have access problems like patients can't get in, but productivity is low. Like clearly there were slots. Is that what you're saying? That there were spots to see patients and yet patients were struggling to get appointments? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we had um, uh, we definitely had, you know, again, in my role, I was learning about um, federally qualified health centers in general and Mm -hmm. trying to learn about some of those things that I didn't really have to pay too much attention to in the past and um, learning that all federally qualified health centers were kind of struggling with this need for a culture change. It was almost um, an existential change that was required because of this whole free clinic mm-hmm. mentality of, you know, if, if people have to wait for a long time, that's just how it is. And you're lucky we're here. Mm-hmm. And we, we definitely had a little bit of that going on. And then I remember one of the wake up calls I had was when somebody said to me, you know, you say you're here for the patients. Um, but that's really just in, in, in words only, you know, mm-hmm. you're not really providing the access that you need to provide. And mm-hmm. so that was pretty harsh, but that mm-hmm. was the wake up call we needed and a recognition that if we did not figure this out, 
um, it was a failing business model and we would have to close our doors. And mm -hmm. so then it's really a, a failed promise to the communities that we serve. So we can go on and on about, you know, oh, the mission is changing and all this, but mm -hmm. there is no mission if we have to close our doors. And that was the reality. Right. So Mendy, from your perspective, coming into this role, it sounds like you got into this position at also this kind of crucial, but difficult time of access being an issue. Um, what were you hearing from patients or staff at that time? I think it was very much uh, similar to what Dawn was hearing. I think uh, from interacting uh, with patients and, and rounding in the exam rooms and the waiting rooms and stuff, you know, it was very much, uh, we have to bring a book with us because we're here so long. Um, I, I It took me six weeks to get in. You mm -hmm. know, it was very similar stories all along those mm -hmm. lines and stuff. And I think the staff, uh, from their perspective, it was very difficult always having to tell the patient, no, we can't get you in until such and such time. And it was very much into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a lot of challenges from that perspective and a lot of, uh, I would say, staff unsatisfaction resulted, as well as patient. Yeah. So your goals were focused on access then, like lower third next available. I think it was higher capacity utilization. Just as a note here, capacity utilization is defined as the number of appointment slots that are used out of the total number of appointment slots available in a patient schedule. So for example, if you are measuring the capacity utilization of a shift and you have 10 appointment slots available and only eight patients uh, come in in that shift, the capacity utilization for the shift would be eight out of 10 or 80% capacity utilization. So Don and Mendy did something uh, forward thinking with their capacity utilization goal. Well, I wanted to um, make it clear in our messaging that we weren't just trying to lower the no-show rate and improve access um, in the traditional way, because then while if we accomplish that, that would be great, that would get us basically up to date with um, maybe the year 2000. <laughs> and I really wanted us to, you know, if we were going to go through all this, mm -hmm. then we were already going to be, again, another 10 years behind because mm -hmm. we, we will. So I was trying to integrate into the messaging. If we're going to improve access, then let's think about all the ways that patients need access to their healthcare team, not just with a traditional face-to-face -face doctor's appointment. And so we had already been starting to dabble in um, understanding what um, a telephone visit was. Mm. And we were just going live with our new um, EMR at, around this time. And, and Epic provided us with a patient portal um, that we had not uh, had before. And so that was also offering new opportunities for patients to have e-visits and to communicate with us in new ways. And, um, and then we were also doing what we were calling these case conferences where we were setting aside time in the schedule for the healthcare team, including the provider, to discuss um, more complicated um, situations mm -hmm. and do some in-between visit work as well. And so we were trying to give the message that um, improving access was to all of those things, not mm -hmm. just the 
traditional doctor's appointment. And that's impressive that you said, okay, an hour of that 92% capacity utilization should be used for virtual visits because tell me about how you're getting paid on those. I mean, that's a scary thing to do because so many people aren't getting paid like they are for the face-to-face in-office visits. So were you getting paid at all for that to create that a goal? It was a, so again, it was one of these um, sort of let's just do it. And then if I get in trouble, I'll figure out a way to apologize for it. So the um, it was definitely a just do it kind of thing. And because we knew it was the right thing to do for patients, we earned zero dollars and zero cents for most of this time. And again, I think our metrics were so bad that no one would really pay attention if they were a little bit worse for a few type of visits. Like no one would uh-huh. care. Uh-huh. We're so bad that mm-hmm. it, so in some ways we took advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Just, um, no one really uh, asking too many <laughs> questions mm-hmm. because uh, the finances were a disaster. So mm-hmm. Now that we're doing better, people are starting to ask. But the good news is that um, now some of that work, we we stalled long enough that some of that work now is starting to get paid for. So right. that's the news, yeah. I would say the other part of that, too, is just the provider satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, having that time to have the case conferences and things like that for uh, the more complicated patients. And then they felt a little more rejuvenated. that felt more uh, mission-oriented. So... Mm-hmm. I think they were able to tackle the rest of their schedules with a little more enthusiasm or positive outlook. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting because I even know one of your providers um, during a presentation after they were done with the collaborative, I think quantified how much it costs to replace a provider. So it's interesting you bring up provider burnout because what he was saying was, Um, all this made a difference in how he practiced, how he felt at the end of the day. And that would save you on money down the line if you're burning out providers and you have to replace them. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, So that was one of your goals around virtual visits. Tell me, you said this is a success story. So what are some of the measures that um, did improve and what do they look like now? So we've seen improvement, um, in all of the metrics that we have been um, publicly sharing. So Mm -hmm. it's not 100% every day Mm -hmm. uh, sustainable at all of our sites on all the metrics. That Mm -hmm. needs to be said from the beginning. But we definitely have seen um, kind of breakthrough numbers, so we know it's possible. Uh, And so I would say um, our capacity utilization is probably our best success story. Um, and that is really where the Coleman tools made a giant difference because that, you know, filling appointments, are, are, the no-show rate has improved, but mm-hmm. it's still um, something that we struggle with. But if, if, we mm-hmm. can, if we can fill that appointment with someone else, then I still see that as a giant win. Mm-hmm. So our capacity utilization is probably the best success story mm-hmm. and our patient satisfaction data as a subsequent um, byproduct of that is also a, been a very impressive success story. The no-show rate has improved, mm-hmm. cycle time has improved, but we're not at our goal mm-hmm. as a sustained thing yet. Mm-hmm. Third next available, um, same thing, it has improved. Mm-hmm. Um, our flexibility and, and more patient-centered scheduling that you all have taught us um, has allowed us to um, have 
people call and get the appointment that they want when they want it, even if it's, you know, three months out from now. And, and that was kind of hard for us to um, trust, but mm-hmm. I think that's turned into uh, in, in the context of using all the tools, it's turned out to also be a patient satisfier. And, you know, we have staff now that have been, um, as Mindy pointed out earlier, have been for years having to just tell people no and telling them, you know, all the things that they don't want to hear when they, they make a call. And now we have patient, uh, staff who say to us um, with big smiles, you know, they say, we're the yes clinic now. And, hmm. and they like to be able to, <laughs> we, everybody all along wanted to be able to give patients what they wanted, but they just couldn't do it. And now we can. So mm-hmm. that's been very rewarding. Mm. And I think um, with the implementation of the Coleman tools and stuff, it really has um, fostered a higher degree of uh, positive culture change. And I think that has allowed us to um, improve our provider productivity, where before we may have been utilizing the schedule, but we had a lot of missed opportunities with the higher no-show rate. But utilizing the tools, we're actually now um, able to uh, jockey things Mm -hmm. around uh, with much more comfort and Mm -hmm. ease than what we were in the past. So I think there's a a much greater acceptance of that constant change in the schedule, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other thing just to add is um, by focusing on patient-centered things and improving access and, and um, having that immediate feedback about um, how well that's received by patients, we've been able to focus on that. And then knowing that at some point, quality would improve, finances would improve, all of those things would happen along the way. But if we had said at the beginning, um, which is what has been said on and off over the years, we need to improve our finances, we need to improve quality, um, that, that wasn't working. That, mm-hmm. that reason why, that message, that was not, obviously, um, not working. So when we were able to, we never said these words, of course, but I was thinking to myself, let's not talk about the finances right now. Let's not talk about even quality. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on using these tools and getting them correct and filling up the schedule. And then all the other things would start to come. And, and that's what happened. And so that's now where we are is that we have um, exceeded um, our CFO's expectations around, um, I think at at the initial outset, it was a five-year goal to Mm -hmm. break even maybe with primary care. And people thought there's no way we were going to ever be breaking even in primary care in a safety net hospital. And but okay, if you want to pretend to have that goal, let's say five years from now, well, we, we did it. Two months ago was our first month, and we have wow. um, everyone to believe that's the, the, um, the new day for us. Congratulations. I didn't know that was two months yeah. ago. That's impressive. Well, we, we are break-even operation now. That's awesome. That's yeah. wonderful. This volume's up 16%. 16? Wow. Wow. That's impressive. That's amazing. I pulled up your data from when we finished the second wave of your collaborative because where you started on capacity utilization was 73% on average and you ended at 96% mm-hmm. on average. Um, but 16% overall is just amazing. 
Congratulations. Well, that's excluding our newest FQHC. If you add them in, 33%. Yeah. And oh, actually wow. the goal for 2019 in our budget was 9% growth. And everyone thought there's no way you're going to hit that. And we almost doubled it. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, tell me about sustaining your achievements. So you know, you two are leaders at Eskenazi. You've been in these roles for a little bit. What are some of the lessons you learned around sustaining some of these practices you put in place? You know, what do you do on a weekly or daily basis to keep this up? Well, I'll start, but Mindy's taught me most of what I'm getting ready to say, but I'll take all the credit. So um, <laughs> I, I think the first thing is um, around accountability. Okay. So now that we've given these tools to people, um, if if there is a site or if there's a team or if there's a provider that is continuing to resist using these tools or there's just because um, we know they work. So mm -hmm. if you use them, they're going to work. And if you're struggling, you know, ask for help and we'll help you get to the root of it because there is a solution and there is a way to do it. And so when there's a site that's struggling or some metrics that are, are just not budging, um, we have some experience now with what to do as leaders in that scenario. And one of them is to look very carefully and critically and um, with great difficulty and in some cases emotion to understand that maybe these leaders that we have worked with for years and we love them and no one's doubting their mm -hmm. dedication to the mission, but they're just not the right people in these roles. Mm -hmm. And so part of the leadership challenge with this has been um, knowing that those decisions have to be made and we're the ones to have to do it. So mm -hmm. lots of um, uh, sleepless nights and stomach aches, but uh, in the end it was, it was the right thing to do. And and just sort of changing the expectations around transparently sharing data and keeping the drumbeat up by having these things um, on meeting agendas at, that never goes away. Mm, <laughs> so, nice. and go ahead, Mindy. And no, and and Don Don said a lot of it, but you know, just the transparency in the data, making sure that um, it's always in the forefront of the conversations. This is our goal. This is our target. This is our priority. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we've uh, added a position. We've kind of made it through all of our waves and we've now brought on a coach to help um, mm -hmm. sustain that and continue to work with the various teams that might have challenging and make sure that, you know, we're not slipping back into bad behaviors. Because mm -hmm. uh, if, if we don't keep it in the forefront, then, then we're, you know, that's likely to happen. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, you know, is we continue to um, educate those new onboarding associates. This is the way that we do things now. Mm. It's not something new. It's not ever. This is just what we do. Mm -hmm. So you catch uh, them keep, in the beginning, like an orientation. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think so, you know, we're doing this leadership series on this podcast. And it's funny because in my last interview, um, the CEO said the same thing about when you go through a dramatic change effort and you start changing like the culture to be performance driven or looking at data. She said the same thing, which is 
you find that the leaders you had before, some of them do well in that culture. And then some of them just, that's not the way they lead. And you need kind of either people need to be trained to lead differently or some just like it's not the right seat on the bus anymore. So I think that's a common sentiment is as culture change, you need leaders to change with it. So in terms of the future of healthcare, you've clearly been thinking about preparing for the future since 2004 with transforming that one health center you started working at. Um, where do you see healthcare in 10 years and how are you preparing for it? I think I'm going to take the second question first. I think the preparing for it, it from my perspective, is um, now that as a leader, I have experienced what it's like to truly change a, a culture. I, 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 it's the most rewarding thing I've ever been through, but I um, really didn't understand until now kind of what that means and what's involved. And I, um, I know I've talked to you about this before, Amanda, but the... Um, mm-hmm that no ego book uh, around uh, one of the leadership books I've read. And I've only read like two or three in my whole life. It's, it's not been a go-to for me, but Mm -hmm. this one turned out to be um, a really good one. And one of the things it said in there was um, our job as leaders is not to make change easy for people. Our Mm job, and I'm, completely paraphrasing and butchering Mm -hmm. um, Cy Wakeman's (laughs) words, but Mm -hmm. it's basically this idea that our job is to, is to make people as prepared for change as possible. Because I kept thinking, you know, oh, we'll just get through this, or we'll just get through this quarter, or just get through this year, or just get through. And, you know, then next year will be calmer. Next year will be better. Next year, we won't have a new EMR. Next year, we won't have our site visit from HRSA. Next year, we won't have, you know, and I keep thinking mm-hmm. this will be the, this next month will be the month I can relax. And that, that's not going to, that's, I, I need to stop waiting for that. It's going to, mm-hmm. in healthcare, um, while I'm not going to probably go on record as to predicting the future, um, because it mm-hmm. is wildly unpredictable, I think that mm-hmm. where I can best be part of the, um, leadership in healthcare is just to help people in my profession. And as a pediatrician, I'm guilty as one of those providers that we just need to be ready to ride the waves and to know that it's going to constantly be changing and to lean in to the change and to have the type of personality and skill set that just allows you to keep adjusting. Because um, despite how young I look, I've been doing this work 30 years. And when I think back to the type, the way I was trained and the way I practiced 30 years ago compared to now, it's day and night different. And I, mm-hmm. I still work with people, though, who come from that same generation I do, who have been dragging their feet the whole time. And mm-hmm. I don't know why no one really taught me to do that. I think part of it is genetically who you are, but I also think there's a big chunk of it as that no ego book points out that is completely teachable and that we just need to get our staff and, and make sure that we prioritize our hires to people that have that mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. The rest of it we can teach in a skills lab, but Mm -hmm. just knowing that this is going to constantly be how it is. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I love that you bring up Cy Wakeman because we recommend this book uh, to a lot of leaders we work with. We recommend it at conferences and we always tell the story. We're like, so there's this CEO of an organization who we work with, who we really respect. And when she came to us with this book, we knew it had to be good. And, And that quote, though, of, you know, change is only hard for the unready is is really one to live by or like this is the reality in which we must succeed. I think it does just change your perspective on how to lead. So Mendy, I'll have you start first on one of my last questions, which is um, what is your advice for other leaders who are leading culture change, you know, these big changes that you've been going through and continue to go through? What's your advice? Um, I would think well, see, this is very challenging for me because I tend to like change. I mm. like to identify the barriers very quickly and then scope out and think of the ways to overcome those barriers. Mm-hmm. So I think being open to all options. I, I think I would say uh, to remain humble mm-hmm. or to become humble if you're not naturally that way, um, because there's an enormous number of mistakes you'll make along the way and to not be afraid of making those mistakes and just to, to be okay with sharing them, um, and kind of putting yourself out there a little bit, uh, has been key for me. And I didn't even really know to do that. I just don't know how else to be. And so I just, I don't know, I think sharing mistakes, being humble, I think over communicating, one of the things that I continue to m- make mistakes on over and over and over again, no matter how good of a job I think I'm doing is around communication. Mm. So just continuing to um, communicate. And when you think you've done it enough, you haven't. Uh, and um, just hire the best people that you can mm-hmm. and stay out of the way. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. All, none of these are original. These are all things I've, I've heard from other people. but. Um, I think, I think I'll just stop with those. Yeah, well, it's the discipline to do that. I do know that from being in learning sessions or rooms with you is that you, you always do take the time to say, you may have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's worth saying. And I think it does, like people around you then will tend to repeat that message because they've heard you say it a number of times. And I think that does impact communication. And it certainly sets a course for the direction of staff if they hear something over and over, people start to repeat it. I mean, we even teach it in having people come up with elevator speeches. If you say it enough, the whole staff will start saying it too. Right, right. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to share innovation-wise or leadership-wise that you're really proud of um, that you would share? You know, I thought we'd be waiting a long time before we saw some of these outcomes and um, not even sure we'd be around long enough, alive long enough to see them. So it's been... Um, truly a, a business case scenario about um, some of these things that you always read about, but until you're actually living them and doing them and seeing it, I, I, I had no idea how rewarding it could be and um, how fulfilling. So it's, it's, I, I, it's not really an innovation, but it's mm-hmm. just kind of taking old, old advice about teams and, and how to work with people and um, mm-hmm. put it into action. It's been beyond all my expectations. I truly admire Don and Mendy's attitude when it comes to managing and preparing for change. Like they said, it's never going away, so might as well get good at it. 
I want to thank them for sharing their time with us and for all of their wise words on this week's episode. Thank you. I also want to thank Jonathan at Bionic Squid and Ryan Jury for their help editing and producing this episode. Next time, we hear from a CEO out of Wichita, Kansas, about how her health center organization led lasting and sustainable change. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear our next episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week.